Thank you, Bert. Thank you, Robin. Excellent job as always. Could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah, verse 1? Obadiah, verse 1. And as we normally do, let's, uh, to, before we open the second session, let's take a, let's pray for the offering. We you bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to express our love and appreciation and this uh, love offering to you. We know that all, everything that we have comes from you, all the blessings, material and spiritual. And we even know that uh, what you've given to, you've given us uh, the finances to give, Father. Everything comes from you, and we're just re- giving back and showing our appreciation to you for all that you've done for us. And we thank you, Father, for those who take part in this offering. And we just pray, Father, it would bring glory and honor to you and your Son Jesus Christ. This love offering to you, Father. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Obadiah verse 1. We're continuing our study of the book of Obadiah, which is a, today we'll be noting verse 10. We're getting into the indictments against the kingdom of uh, Edom. Uh, Remember the historical background of this book. It was written sometime after the third and final invasion. Nebuchadnezzar invaded uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and uh, uh, 587, 586 B.C. approximately. Uh, we saw that uh, this, uh, the kingdom of Edom took part in this invasion, and this was very this uh, rubbed God the wrong way. He was very angry about it because the Edom were descendants of Esau, and the kingdom of Judah, Israelites, they were descendants of Jacob, who got his name changed by God to Israel. So they were blood relatives. So God was extremely angry. One of the things that really got him angry, as we'll see, is that as they basically, the, the kingdom of Edom, uh, they allowed, they watched Babylon kind of beat the heck out of uh, this kingdom of Judah, and then they just came in, swept up uh, what Babylon didn't take. So they really took, uh, they let Babylon do their dirty work for them. And God was extremely angry with these people. So this book, uh, the, the, the book of Obadiah, it's talking about the, that God judges the nations, uh, that he doesn't like uh, this kind of behavior in families where we not t- uh, where, uh, show animosity to family members and, uh, and, and blood relatives because God was angry with Edom for their treatment, terrible treatment uh, with the kingdom of Judah. So uh, just a little bit of historical background, go back it up a little bit where we are right now in this book, sometime after the third and final invasion of the kingdom of Judah. Remember, uh, you had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from uh, Jacob got his name, as I said before, changed to Israel. He had 12 sons, and they were the progenitors of the nation of Israel. And then under King Saul, and then King David, and then also uh, Solomon, you had what we call the United Kingdom. They had a king, they were united. But we saw that the, uh, the King Solomon, because of his love for his foreign wives, at the end of his life, he died in apostasy. A lot of Christians don't understand this. He died in apostasy. And God was extremely angry with King Solomon because his love for his foreign wives, and he had many of them, which God told the kings, uh, the king, Israel, your kings are not to do that. And he did that. 
So he goes out and he marries all these foreign women that are worshiping these other gods. He got involved in what we call syncretism. He wanted to worship Yahweh, but he also wanted to worship these other gods along with his wives, his foreign wives. So God went to him and said, I'm going to take away, the, not the kingdom away from you, but from your son because of your unfaithfulness to me. And because of your father, David, I won't take the kingdom away from you while you're alive. Well, he dies, he has a son, Rehoboam, and God takes away the kingdom from him. Uh, the, we have two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. They stayed, uh, they were called the, the kingdom of Judah. And then the ten, uh, we have 10 northern tribes. They were called the kingdom of Israel. So when you go first, second kings and first, second chronicles, you see the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. That's because there was a civil war. So uh, Rehoboam was gonna try to strike back, but God sent the prophet in saying, no, this is what I want. I want this kingdom divided because of King Solomon and his unfaithfulness, his apostasy. So you had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. The ten tribes went with where they're called the northern kingdom. The two that uh, stayed, they were called the kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom, they were Benjamin and Judah, those two tribes. Now, in 722 uh, B.C., the kingdom of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, they were the, one of the great empires before Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And Assyria in 722 BC was used by God to discipline the northern kingdom for their apostasy. Uh, they were in great apostasy. Uh, they, were in, they were involved in all kinds of ungodly behavior. They actually be adopted a lot of the sinful practices of the inhabitants of, the, of Canaan before Israel came in. And so they were disciplined by God. And Assyria came in in 722 BC, and they were deported, defeated as a nation in the battlefield, and then they were deported throughout the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world. They never returned again. That left the southern kingdom of Judah. And you had great men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Jeremiah, who was one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, if you ask me, Obadiah was a contemporary of him, and then you had Ezekiel as well. All these men were a part of the faithful remnant of Judah. But the kingdom of Judah in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. was disciplined by God. Uh, God sent prophet after prophet in there, including Jeremiah, to warn them to go back to repent by confessing their sins and then doing what he tells them in the law. They didn't do that. Only a small remnant believed, and those men were a part of that remnant I just mentioned. So Nebuchadnezzar was used by God it says in Jeremiah 27, I might take you there t today, but Jeremiah 27, God says something quite interesting. He says that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Now, Nebuchadnezzar at that point was not a believer. In the book of Daniel, he does become a believer, chapters uh, 2 and 3. And in chapter 4, he's being disciplined by God. But we see that Nebuchadnezzar, as an ungodly, unregenerate person, was used by God. He was using Nebuchadnezzar and his armies as his instrument to discipline not only the southern kingdom of Judah, but all the various ungodly nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. And mind you, God was using Nebuchadnezzar to judge these nations, and God waited generation after generation for these people to repent. And then he brought the hammer down. God is long-suffering. He's not everlasting suffering. There's an end of his patience. So he gave these people every opportunity to repent, including the kingdom of Judah. But they didn't. So they were in 586 B.C., the final invasion ends in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, predicted by Daniel in Daniel 9.26. 
And for 70 years, Jeremiah was told in his prophecy, Jeremiah said, 70 years, you'll be in Babylon. And then after the 70 years, I will bring you back. In fact, God even predicts the ruler who's going to do that. In the book of Isaiah, over 100 years before, Cyrus, the Medo-Persian ruler who defeated Babylon, he would issue decrees to send the, kingdom, uh, the, uh, the remnant that was in Babylon to send them back to, to, the southern, back to Israel and rebuild the tents, temple and the city of Jerusalem. That's what the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah and the book of Haggai are all about and Zechariah, the beginning of it, books that we'll be doing in the future. So the, Obadiah is writing this prophecy after that final invasion in 586 BC, which resulted in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, and the city of Jerusalem. It was left in ruins. So Obadiah is a part of this uh, remnant that's left behind, and he's seen the destruction of his entire nation. It totally consumed, the whole, from the top down, totally disintegration of Judean society. He saw his nation collapse. So here's Obadiah. He gets this prophecy, which is very, it sounds, in fact, it's almost identical to Jeremiah 49, 7 through 23. If you read, we'll read that too. It sounds just like the book of Obadiah. It talks, that passage in Jeremiah talks about uh, God's uh, uh, hatred for what the Edomites did to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so that tells us that Obadiah was a contemporary of Jeremiah because nobody doubts when Jeremiah was around. He was around during the 6th century B.C. So Obadiah, because it echo, Obadiah echoes Jeremiah 49, 7-23, and Jeremiah's condemnation of the Edomites for their treatment of the southern kingdom of Judah, we know that Obadiah was written around that period of time as well, after that final invasion. So the animosity of Judah and uh, the, the, the Israelites and, and the Edomites goes way back goes way back to Genesis, where Esau and Jacob, right from the beginning, the story of Esau and Jacob, we're going to do that book in the future, Genesis. I want to knock off some smaller books before we do these bigger books, because I want to have a sense of accomplishment, that we're accomplishing something here, But because we'll be in Genesis for a while. But Genesis records the story of Esau and Jacob. Esau was not a believer, Jacob was. Uh, Jacob did not value spiritual things. He didn't value his birthright. With being uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the birthright was something else, especially for them, because God is giving promises to Abraham, Isaac, and, he want, and whoever is uh, the positive, uh, positive of the word of God would, uh, of Jake, Isaac's children would get that promise, get those promises, inherit those promises that he, uh, God gave Abraham and Isaac. So... Jacob, uh, Esau didn't have any, didn't want anything to do with spiritual matters. So there was, a, so then uh, we saw that Jacob he swindled him out of his birthright, and then that just ticked off Esau, and he wanted to kill him. So his mother Rebecca, who, whose bright idea to deceive uh, her husband into thinking that Jacob was Esau and Esau was, so that was backfired for for her. She never saw Jacob again. She had to send him away because of Esau's hatred. Send him away to Uncle Laban, all right, up in Syria, what we call today. And Uncle Laban was a worse swindler than Jacob was. But Jacob learned to treat people the way you want to be treated. <laughs> and so he comes back, and uh, he comes back eventually, okay? But 
Esau was he, he had to stay twenty over twenty years up there. God prospered him uh, up there. He had he had uh, two wives, and he had one. He was he wanted a he, uh, Rachel. He he got didn't get her on the marriage night. He waited, worked seven years for her, and then he turns around and he has to. Uh, he, he he finds that Blair is in his bed. You know, you, you just swindled me there. I wanted Rachel. I worked for seven years for Rachel. Well, you can get, you can, you, it's not, and we have a custom, you gotta take care of the older girl first. I was like, so he gets both of these as his wives, and then there's a big competition, because one was getting children, the other was not, and the next thing you know, they're sleeping with their handmaid. So he, Jacob was sleeping with four different women, has 12 sons. Now talk about having a dysfunctional family. So that's where the nation of Israel comes from. Talk about grace. And they were pieces of work, some of these guys. Uh, Judah was unbelievable. He goes out and sleeps with uh, prostitutes. <laughs> he was like, you know, soliciting prostitutes and everything. But he became a great believer in the end. Now, here's this, you know, so we have this animosity between Esau and Jacob. So when Jacob comes back, God sends him back to the land of Canaan, he's going to run into Esau. And Esau has no problem with him. Because Esau was blessed by God. However, the two nations that would come from them would have tremendous hatred for each other. Esau, the Edomites, and Jacob, he became the Israelites. And that, 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 that terrible uh, animosity between these two nations just went through Old Testament history and it culminated in Edom's betrayal of their blood relatives, the kingdom of Judah. Fascinating. So that's the setting of Obadiah. Obadiah is writing a prophecy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit which condemns the Edomites. It's also a book that talks about many things, not, not just about the story and the sad ending of this story between Esau, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, and the southern king of Judah, the descendants of Jacob. It shows that one thing is that God judges the nations. He holds the nations accountable. He also is a God of judgment, a God of holiness. People don't want to hear that about God. They just want to hear the love side. And God is a God of love. The fact that he was so patient with the Edomites and the, and the, and the southern kingdom of Judah, he was patient for centuries with these people before he destroyed them. So it, it, we're talking about the holiness of God, the justice, the righteousness of God. God rules the nations, the divine retribution. God, what, what we see in this book of Obadiah, what Obadiah did to their blood relatives, the southern kingdom of Judah, God did to them. What comes around goes around. You know why that is? Because there's a God in heaven who sits in his throne and he sees what men, mankind is doing. And nobody gets away with anything. Everybody's held to account. And to me, that to me is very and comforting and encouraging because I never get really too worked up about the politics and or whatever's going on in the world or Putin or whatever. I don't, I say, these guys are all going to get what all the other rulers in the past have gotten. Nobody's getting away with anything. Okay? Jesus Christ sits on the throne ruling history and everything that's going on in history today is culminating in the final, the final war, Armageddon campaign, the 70th week of Daniel, and it's going to end with Christ ruling this earth. And we're the bride of Christ and those who are overcomers, Revelation 2 and 3 say, is that those overcomers are going to rule some of the nations and cities that will be on the earth during the millennial reign of Christ. Every believer is in the millennium, but only the, those who are faithful in life 
and, 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 and execute the plan of God to become like Christ, will be running these cities and, 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 and nations. Because you've got to remember that Satan and the fallen angels currently are ruling the world. Quite clearly, John, 1 John 5, 19, we said, he did, all the, deceive, the world is under his deception. Satan's the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, you've heard me say. He deceives the entire world. Revelation chapter 12. But that's coming to an end. That's temporary. When Christ comes back at his second advent with the church to destroy the tribulational armies and Antichrist and the false prophet and imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years, he, at that time, he will establish the kingdom of God on earth and his bride, the church, we're right there with him. Okay? And the Old Testament saints, like Moses and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Daniel, they're friends of the bridegroom. We're the bride. Think of how that cool that is. So we are a part of this big drama that's going on. And Obadiah is in the midst of a terrible crisis in his life. A tremendous drama is unfolding. What will God do for my nation? What is, do we, is there still a plan? And what about our enemies? I'm going to take care of those enemies of yours, God says. And then I'm going to give you a great future. Because at the very end of Obadiah, verses uh, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, is a great prophetic picture of Israel with their Messiah in Israel, in Jerusalem, ruling for a thousand years. That's the prophetic expectation of the kingdom of Israel. It has always been. This is what they were hoping for Jesus of Nazareth, that he would be the one to do this, and he will, but he had to go to the cross before he got the crown. Sin had to be dealt with in order for him to reign over this earth. So today, Obadiah verse 10 is what we'll be looking at, where Edom will be covered with shame and destroyed as a nation because of the violence she committed against Judah. So if you could, look at your uh, Bibles and uh, look at verse 1. We'll read, it's only one chapter long, like Jude. We'll read it all the way through, and now we'll, then after that we'll look at verse 10 in detail. So Obadiah verse 1, please. Obadiah verse 1. This vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign law says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you a small among the nations, insignificant. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there... I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Rhetorical questions demanding a positive response, of course. But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Yes, he will. Your warriors, Teman, which is a geographical location that uh, was in Edom, and a lot of times you see it in Scripture like here, where Teman is really representative of the nation of Edom. So it says, your warriors, Teman, will be terrified. 
and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence, now in verses 10 to 14, the charges are listed as to why God's going to do this to Edom, as he describes in verses 2 through 9. Because of the violence against your brother, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be because, because of your violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. Notice he says, my people. Why? Because the kingdom of Judah was in a covenant relationship with God, the God of the, uh, Jesus Christ. Okay? That's why he calls them my people. Then it says in verse 14, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. That was true in Obadiah's day, but it's also going to be true for the nations in the future, future to the rapture of the church. The day of the Lord is imminent. The rapture is imminent, and the day of the Lord is thus imminent. Why? Because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12 says, the rapture of the church triggers the manifestation of the Antichrist. He can't appear until, until we're gone. He, the Holy Spirit, who indwells each one of us in the church, is restraining the manifestation of, uh, of his Antichrist, his appearance, and the proliferation of evil in the world today. Specifically, those who are faithful in the church that have the Spirit in them, which we all do in, in the church, but the, those who are faithful are those who are actively God's using. Those who are unfaithful are really not the salt of the earth. When they're in fellowship with God, they become the salt of the earth. So we, once we're gone, then that triggers the day of the Lord, which is yet future. But what's interesting, the day of the Lord is basically in Obadiah's day, in the 6th century B.C., it tells us there's a greater day of the Lord's coming. Okay? It's a pattern. What happened in Obadiah's day, it sets a pattern for what's going to happen in the future. That is future to the rapture. So verse 15 says, the day of the Lord is near. That means it's imminent for all the nations. In Obadiah's day, and also uh, in, a, in a far uh, sense to, for us. So here's another thing about prophecy. There's a lot of times you'll see near fulfillments and far fulfillments. It'll be a near fulfillment in Obadiah's day, all the nations being judged, but in a far sense, it'll be ultimately fulfilled in after we're gone, the church is removed. So the day of the Lord is near, verse 15, for all the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Divine retribution. What comes around goes around. Just as you drank on my holy hill, that means the cup of wrath, God's wrath, so all the nations will drink continually. Who's the you? That's the, the southern kingdom of Judah. Just as you drank of my wrath, my anger, and God was using Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to express his wrath against the kingdom of Judah, now God's saying, so just as you drank it on my holy, holy hill with Babylon defeating you, so all the nations that did this to you, including Babylon, they will drink the, my cup continually as well. And the, notice, continually for them. The kingdom of Judah, it wasn't continual for them because God was going to restore them as a nation. So they will drink, these nations that destroyed 
southern kingdom of Judah, they will drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. But Israel will remain. Because the, why is that? Why won't God wipe out uh, the Israel? Here's why. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and, Je and, and Jeremiah, the new covenant. You hear those covenants? The Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and new covenants. Palace, Abrahamic covenant, talked about in Genesis uh, chapter 12. God made personal promises to, uh, to Abraham, and he made national promises. In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. That's the Gentiles. That's you and I. Christ would be a Jew. Christ would be, the Savior would be a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews, as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. But God made promises to the Palestinian covenant. God gave pro promises of land to the nation of Israel that they've never really, they've only accomplished like 125th. They haven't even done, they haven't even done one, uh, they haven't even come close to gaining all the land and taking possession of the land that God promised to them. But when Christ is the ruler on this earth for a thousand years, They'll have land from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates River, all the way up in, uh, north into Turkey, and then all the way into northern Africa. It's all theirs. Who owns the land there? Israel. They just have a little portion of what they have today is nothing compared to what they're going to be like. So God made a promise. David, a descendant, will sit on your throne forever. Christ fulfills that. God gave a new, uh, the new covenant. Promises of the gift of the Spirit and also the forgiveness of sins. And interestingly enough, that's connected to us, of course. We talk about it in the Lord's Supper. It's the blood of the new covenant, my, the covenant of my blood, this new covenant. Well, those who believe in Jesus, okay, led by the apostles, those Jews, they become a part of the faithful remnant of Israel. They receive the gift of the Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And us Gentiles, we're united. Paul talks about this in Romans 11 and also Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. He says the, the, the Gentiles, believers, are now co-partakers, co joint partakers with the Jewish remnant of believers, and that's the church. So we benefit from the new covenant, all right, because being united and grafted in to the Jewish remnant. So, that's, so the new covenant is connected to us. All these covenants, God made promises. They're unconditional. When God makes a promise to Israel, he keeps it. So that's why Israel, those unconditional promises in the Abrahamic, uh, Palestinian, Davidic, and new covenants, that guarantees the existence of the nation of Israel forever. In fact, if you read the new covenant, chapter 34, you, see, you read the, uh, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. At the end of that chapter... God says, emphatic terms, the nation of Israel will always exist. That's why she will not be wiped off the face of the earth ever for her unfaithfulness. God always sets aside a faithful remnant in the nation. We call them today Messianic Jews. Okay? And there will always be a faithful remnant in Israel. Okay? So then it says on verse, in verse 17, But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, it will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. What's that all about? Well, the kingdom was split up, remember, after Solomon, I told you? Well, Joseph represents a lot of times in Scripture, the Old Testament, the, the, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Jacob, the southern kingdom. So in Obadiah's day, they were split, right, remember? Well, they're going to be united now. So he says, Jacob will be a fire, 
This is in the future. And there, it's actually coming to fulfillment in our day and age because the Jews are united now. There's no two kingdoms. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Then it says Esau, which is Edom, will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. And there'll be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken. Interestingly enough, I mentioned this in the introduction. You look at the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to the end of that chapter. This Edom shows up again. Well, just like Israel was not a nation with geographical boundaries and a, and a, and a central government for over, for what, since 70 AD, it wasn't until 1948 they become a nation again. Well, Edom is going to be resurrected during the 70th week of Daniel, and Christ will destroy her at that time. So much so, in Isaiah 63, it says that Christ will come out of Basra with blood on his garments. And there's a passage in Habakkuk where he executes, Christ does, the Antichrist. So the kingdom of Jordan, Jordan is where Edom used to sit. You know about the kingdom of Jordan. They sit right in that area. So Edom will exist again as a nation during the 70th week, resurrected again, and so God can fulfill this prophecy in Isaiah 63, where he comes out and, and to destroys the, the nation of Edom. And this is what he's talking about in a future sense, about the nation of Edom. They'll be wiped off the face of the earth for one final time with Christ's second advent. Then look at verse 19. People from the Negev. Now, this is talking about the millennial kingdom and Israel at that time settling the, the, what, the, uh, the Mediterranean regions of the world. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. And the people from the foothills will possess the, uh, the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelites who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. And the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So this is something fascinating about the Old Testament prophets. You see it definitely in the Minor Prophets. Minor Prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They call it Minor because their works are not like uh, Jeremiah over 50 chapters long. They're smaller in, in, in size. It's interesting. God comes out and says, I'm angry with you, Israel, angry with the kingdom of Judah. Comes out that but same breath, God will give encouragement to those who are faithful in the nation. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. And this, verses 17, uh, you actually could say verses 16, 15, 16, all the way to the end of the chapter, book, uh, end of the book, is really encouragement for the nation of Israel that there is a future for her, that she'll be restored to the land. There's a lot of people in Christianity who don't think that Israel, Christians, conservative Christians, they believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, and, but they don't, they're covenant theologians is what they are, and they don't believe that Israel be restored to the land. This says they will. So we believe in a national regeneration and restoration of the nation of Israel. Regeneration at his second advent, Christ will be believed on by the majority of Jews in contrast to his first advent where the majority rejected him. At his second advent, the majority of the nation will believe in Jesus, they'll look on him whom they pierced, and they'll weep over him as the loss of a firstborn son. Zechariah 12 and 14 makes that clear. Paul talks about this in Romans 11, 25 through 29. Matthew 24 talks about this. They're going to be regenerated. Ezekiel 37, the dry bones passage. Well, those bones are together right now, okay? But God hasn't breathed in the breath of life, eternal life in there. They haven't got eternal life yet. They're going to have that as a nation 
at Christ's second advent. In fact, during the tribulation period, he's going to have 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the tri 12 tribes of Israel, who will be believers at that time. But they're just a small portion of the nation. So, a national regeneration of the nation of Israel. Look at born again saved. And then, a national restoration of Israel. What's that? They'll be restored to the land. This book proves it. And many other passages. Yes, they, they have prompt, God promised the land to them. Part of the Abrahamic and the Palestinian covenant. He promised them land. He's going to give it back to them. And this book is one of the books that makes that clear. That God's faithful to his promises. There'll be a national restoration of the nation of Israel to the land. Now, if you look back up to verse 1 again. I want to review quickly uh, some of the things we've covered already. Because our verse is verse 10. But I want you to understand what we've covered so far. The envoy in verse 1 is actually a fallen angel that God used. He said, okay, Satan's the god of, these, of this world, so Satan's the ruler of this world, so a fallen angels are in charge of this world. They're delegated authority, they're accountable to God. You see this in the book of uh, Job. You see it in uh, other passages in the Old Testament where Satan is, uh, has to, uh, is accountable to God and he has to run things by God before he does anything. So because this is dealing with the Gentile nations of the world that are under Satan's authority, the envoy has to be a fallen angel that's going to do this. So he's going to rile the nations up and their political leaders for war and their people for war. And this is, this is a very important thing. Daniel talks about this, Daniel 10. What's going on in the nations now is simply a reflection of what's going on in the angelic realm. What's going on in the, in the world today is a reflection of what's going on in this, in this realm. In the angelic realm. That's what's going on. So the envoy is a fallen nation, a fallen angel, and the nations, of course, are the various nations, pagan Gentile nations, that are scattered about the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. And he's, the, the message is this, rise, let's go to battle against Edom. God has given the order, I'm destroying Edom. Okay? And so Satan sends his envoy to these nations. They get them all worked up like Babylon. And we're going to go and take out Edom now. Do what they did to the southern kingdom of Judah. So when he talks about, see, I'll make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. They'll be, insigni they'll be insignificant. They'll be laughed at. You'll kind of let what we look at and laugh at Hitler's Germany or the, uh, the, Jap the empire of Japan. It's like, what are, who are they now? We don't care about them anymore, right? Well, that's what they're going to be like. Edom's going to be like that. But here's what's really significant, which brings a nation down. Pride. Notice the pride. They condemn for their pride in verse 3. And their pride is manifested in their boast, uh, their confidence, arrogant confidence in their geographical location, which served as a natural deterrent against armies. Uh, let me give you pictures of of the terrain that an army approaching Edom. I've, saw, I've shown you these before. Here's, uh, this shot is the site of Selah. It's in the mountains of tra in Transjordan. This is what an approaching army would see. How do you get water for your army in a region like this, which is so arid? And the Edomites would sit up there in the clefts of the rock and just have a turkey shoot. In fact, there are passages in this particular um, area where you had to get a million-man army, you'd have to go one man at a time in some of the passageways, passageways, because that's the kind of terrain it was. Here's another shot. Uh, this is the view of Petra in the southeast region of Edom. Look out. 
terrible a place it is for a foreign army to approach. Ehim said, they're not going to... We're outgunned. I don't care about Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. They're outgunned. So what? We're real smart. We'll hide up there. Good luck trying to get through the, navigate the terrain here with an army and get water and logistics for your army, food, shelter, and clothing. Good luck. Good luck for it. We're going to eat you up. We don't care. You bring a many men, we got you. Because we, we have a geographical location that is absolutely uh, intimidating, and we don't think you can beat us. That's the pride. So it all resided on what they were, the geographical location that they were in. Now, if you look at verse 5 and 6, a lot of rhetorical questions. If these came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Verse 5, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Well, harvesters, nobody takes every... I've seen in Iowa... The big, big combines, okay? I had some big-time farmers in my church, in that first church plant. And I've been in one of those combines. It's not farming. I'm telling you right now, they had it a much tougher about 50, 60, 70 years ago before these combines. But those things, they get the GPS, and they can plant with these things, perfect rows, and then picking it. It's like they can do it all in one night, and they get lights on the, on the, on the thing, and they just, everything's gone. You know, they picked everything up. But some, if you look at the, at the crops, sometimes, you know, they did, uh, they did corn and they did soybean. You could see soybean and some corn left behind, okay? So harvesters in Israel, they were told to leave some of the, you know, leave some of it behind. Don't, don't pick it up. Let the poor have that. God said that in his law. Well, harvesters, they leave something behind. Thieves, they just take what they want. If they want your television or whatever they can get their two hands and carry out the door, they just take it there. They're not going to go, well... Well, let's take uh, let's take let's take that picture. That's a pretty nice picture. Well, let's take our time. Well, to clean the whole house out. I never. I'm, I'm sure it's happened where thieves, because they were people were away, they clean the whole house out, which is pretty pretty uh, gutsy on their part. I got another word for it, in Massachusetts. But we see that, that they leave something behind, and I taken everything. God saying in verse six, uh-uh. Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. I'm not leaving anything behind. I'm wiping these guys out. I'm taking. I'm taking them out. And then, here's the betrayal. Remember, they betrayed the southern kingdom of Judah, their blood relatives. Verse 7, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you, betray you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Their intelligence, the Edomites were famous in the world at that time for their wise men. They were extremely intelligent people. They were, they were famous for it because they had the trade caravans went right through that area. So they knew everything about the world more than anybody else. And so, but their wise men, their intelligence experts, they didn't detect this. They were, they were, they were deceived. Verse 8, And that day declares the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those understanding in the mountains of Esau? So the, he's going to decapitate the government. He's going to take out the intelligentsia, the political and military advisors. I'm going to take them out. And then what happens? The result, verse 9, your warriors, Teman, Teman again is a representative of the nation of Edom, will be terrified. Why? Because all their military and political leaders have been killed. And everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. And then we see verse 10, our verse for the day. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, 
You'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. The Net Bible, let me give you the translation, couple of translations of this verse. The Net Bible says, because you violently slaughtered your relatives, the people of Jacob, shame will cover you, and then it says, and you'll be destroyed forever. My translation of this verse goes as follows. You'll be covered with shame because of the sinful violence committed against your relative, the descendants of Jacob. Indeed, you'll certainly be cut off forever. So, Obadiah, verse 10, as I've mentioned briefly to you, begins a section in this tiny book, which ends in verse 14. The paragraph, verses 10 through 14, presents the God of Israel presenting the indictments against the nation of Edom. Okay? He just said, I'm going to judge you in verses 2 through 9. Now he's going to give his reasons in verses 10 through 14. And God does this through the prophets. Whatever nation, whether it's Babylon, Israel, whoever the nation is in the ancient world, and he issues a prophecy against them, he always tells you the reasons. In several places sometimes. So this paragraph presents the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, presenting the indictments against the nation of Edom. In other words, verses 10 to 14 present the reason why the God of Israel will judge this nation. In fact, verse 10 actually summarizes verses 11 to 14 in detail in the same way verse 1 in relation to verses 2 through 9. So verse 1 summarizes what's going to take place in verses 2 through 9, and verse 10 summarizes what's going to take place in verses 11 through 14. So furthermore... Obadiah, verses 10 through 14, fills in some of the blanks of Jeremiah 52 and 2 Kings 25, and also 2 Chronicles 36, which talks about the destruction of the, of the kingdom of Judah at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, they give us information, verses 10 through 14, they give us information regarding the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and it reveals the nation of Edom's role in this destruction at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Uh, hold your place. Let's go to, um, let's take on, uh, let's go Jeremiah 52. Look at Jeremiah 52. There's several passages in the Bible, Old Testament, talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and the reason why that is, there are three, actually several, at least three places. You got 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 52, and then you have first, uh, 2 Kings 25. And it's, why, why is that? Because it's an important event in Israel's history. I mean, it would be like if Washington got destroyed. The city of Washington was destroyed by the Chinese and the Russians. It's a big event, okay? So look, it's a big chapter, verse, uh, chapter 52 of Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 52. Remember, he's a contemporary of Obadiah. Okay? I don't know if they knew each other, but they're definitely contemporaries. Jeremiah 52. Zedekiah, the king of uh, Judah at the time, was 21 years old when he became king. And he ruled in Jerusalem for 11 years. He was actually a puppet for the, the Babylonians. His mother's name was Hamutal, Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah from Libna. He did what pleased the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. What follows is a record of what happened to Jerusalem and Judah because of the Lord's anger when he drove them out of his sight. 
Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came against Jerusalem with his whole army and set up camp outside it. They built siege ramps all around it, and he arrived on the tenth day of the tenth month in the ninth year that Zedekiah ruled over Judah. Uh, siege warfare uh, can be brutal because you could st- basically starve a city. And, and, the, and, 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 and you read Josephus. He talks about the uh, with uh, Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans laying siege to Jerusalem. People, met, women were eating their children in the city. And the Romans were stupefied when they came in there. It was terrible. That's what they would do, starve the city, city out. The city remained under siege until Zedekiah's 11th year. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city was so severe, the residents had no food. They broke through the city walls, and all the soldiers tried to escape. They left the city during the night. They went through the gate between the two walls that is near the king's garden, and the Babylonians had the city surrounded. Then they headed for the Jordan Valley. But the Babylonian army chased after the king. They caught up with Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and his army deserted him. little interjection here about uh, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was told by Jeremiah, capitulate to Nebuchadnezzar, don't rebel against him, all will go well with you. He didn't listen to Jeremiah. Now he's going to get it. Look at verse 9. They captured him, and they did something terrible to him. They brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the territory of Hamath, and they passed sentence on him there. And the king of Babylon had Zedekiah's sons put to death while Zedekiah was forced to watch. He also had all the nobles of Judah put to death there at Riblah. He had Zedekiah's put out and had him bound in chains. last thing he saw was his kids being executed. Then the king, all because... He didn't listen to God, the Holy Spirit, speak to, to him through Jeremiah. This didn't have to happen. God was trying to stop that from happening. God wouldn't listen. So I always say, don't blame God for everything that misfortune happens to people. Maybe God's been trying to tell them, don't do this, and they do it anyways, right? You know, so you're, you're, let's take, for instance, you're, you're a homosexual, and you like to practice homosexuality, and you get AIDS, okay? Don't take, don't blame God for that. God was trying to tell you, through people in your life and the gospel don't do that it leads to destruction you're under the wrath of God what are you doing but people do this all the time and they say oh God you didn't no God was trying to talk to you trying to talk to the world now through the church and the gospel people won't listen so Zedekiah had his eyes put out had chains he bound him in chains then the king of Babylon had him led off to Babylon and he was imprisoned there until the day he died on the tenth day of the fifth month in the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon Nebuchadnezzar the captain of the royal guard who served the king of Babylon arrived in Jerusalem. He burned down the Lord's temple, Solomon's temple. This was a tremendous emotional disaster for the people because the temple was the heart of Jewish life. Burned down the temple, the Lord's temple, the royal palace, and all the houses in Jerusalem, including every large house. The whole Babylonian army came, uh, that came with the captain of the royal guard tore down the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the royal guard, took into exile some of the poor, and the rest of the people who remained in the city, those who had deserted to him, and the rest of the craftsmen. But he left behind some of the poor and gave them fields and vineyards, which was common practice of conquering armies. They leave the poor there and they take care of the fields. Then they tax them. The Babylonians broke the two bronze pillars in the temple of the Lord, Solomon's temple, as well as the movable stands in the large bronze basin called the sea. And they took all the bronze to Babylon. And they also took the pots and shovels and trimming shears, basins, pans, and all the bronze utensils used by the priests. If you look at the book of Daniel, the very beginning of the book, Daniel talks about this. 
a lot of the articles of the, of the Solomon's Temple were taken in the first invasion in 605 BC when Daniel was taken and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, taken to Babylon. But guess what? 70 years later, all that stuff that was being housed and stored by Babylon was all brought back for the Temple of Zerubbabel, they call it. The book of Haggai and Zechariah talks about this. When they, restored, when they came back from exile and they rebuilt the temple, rebuilt Jerusalem. So then it says in verse 19, the captain of the royal guard took the gold and silver bowls, censers, basins, pots, lampstands, pans, and vessels, the bronze of the items that King Solomon made for the Lord's temple, including the two pillars, the large bronze basin called the sea, and the 12 bronze bulls under the sea, and the movable stands was too heavy to be weighed. Each of the pillars was about 27 feet high, about 18 feet in circumference, and it says, and I'm reading from the Net Bible, and I'm so sorry about that. You're probably wondering, where, uh, where I am. So that the, what, the, you can watch it up here. It's actually a better translation here in this book because of the, the, um, the, uh, the measurements here. So the, verse 22, the bronze top of one pillar about, was about seven, one half feet high and had bronze latest work and pomegranate shaped ornaments around it, all around it. And the second pillar with its pomegranates was like it. And so uh, if you, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but this is what this is the, de the description of the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And I'm going to read for the next, the, uh, the NIV. So there's a little briefer account. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Look at verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. I just thought you said Jeremiah was a good guy. Well, he was, and then he didn't listen to Jeremiah anymore. Is why he's saying what he's saying. Two different uh, portions of Zedekiah's life. Solomon did good at the beginning of his life, but at the end of his life, he didn't. So verse 13 says, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. He showed that stiff-neckedness, that arrogance, by not listening to Jeremiah, stay loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, otherwise he's going to kill you. Furthermore, verse 14, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful. The following, all the they followed all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, giving them grace. But what did they do to the grace? They thumbed their nose at God. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Verse 18, he carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, they burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successes until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed and fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And Daniel was reading this prophecy before he got the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9. He was reading Jeremiah. He says it. Then verse 23, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, who was predicted in Isaiah over 100 years before that Cyrus would be his servant and bring the people back. There's another prophecy that demonstrates the Bible's inspired by God. Verse 22, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of the Cyrus of king of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. And any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. Go back now to Obadiah verse 10. Did you notice something there? For those of you worried about our current political situation, you could, God, God can move President Biden to do whatever he wants. It doesn't matter who, whoever it is in there, it doesn't matter. What they're, if they're an atheist, even if they're an atheist, don't underestimate the power of God. How does he move the king? Circumstances, blessings, adversity. The king, he moves it just like he moves anybody else. So pray. Keep praying, as many of you I know are. So, if you look at my translation again of Obadiah verse 10. Obadiah says, You be covet, Edom, with shame because of the sinful violence against your relative, the descendants of Jacob. Indeed, you'll certainly be cut off forever. So, verse 10 contains two prophetic declarations which reveal that God will destroy the, this nation, Edom, because they sinfully committed violence against the descendants of Jacob, who we noted, of course, were Israelites. And specifically, they committed violence against the southern kingdom of Judah during the Babylonian invasions of Judah, which took place again in the 6th century B.C. Now, as you can see in your translations and mine, the first prophetic declaration in this verse asserts that the nation of Israel, uh, Edom will be covered with shame because of the sinful violence they committed against their relative who were the descendants of Jacob. Now, the second one advances upon the first prophetic declaration or actually the, the prophetic declaration in verse 9 of Obadiah, which predicts in verse 9 that the Edomite people will be violently executed like criminals because of the slaughter as a result of their wise men being killed and their mighty warriors experiencing dismay because of this. When God says that he's going to cut them off, he means they, he will cause them to be cut off from the nations of the earth. And it's happened. In other words, they will no longer be a national entity with geographical boundaries because of God judging them for their sinful treatment of the southern kingdom of Judah in the 6th century B.C. So these two prophetic declarations express God's wrath. What's God's wrath? His righteous indignation. What's that? His legitimate anger to sin. There's only one way to escape it. John 3, 36. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. 
That's the only chance that you have to escape the wrath of God. And us, children of God, we've escaped God's wrath. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 talks about that, verses 1 to 5. So we're delivered from the wrath to come. The greatest, think about this. No matter how bad it gets in your life, I've done this. It's amazing what it can do for you. No matter how bad it gets in life, you, you, you get cancer or you get some, a loss of a loved one or you lost your job or you, you know, something terrible is happening in your life or multiple things are going on. Oh, you, you know, your mother got dementia, your father's got a heart attack, your brother dies of cancer, you know, you lose your job, your eyesight's failing you, I can't see anymore, okay? You, you, you're, you got arthritis really bad. Whatever's going on in your life, you've been safe from the wrath of God. You're going to get a resurrection body. When you die, you're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Rejoice. Even if God kills you, takes you out. Good. I'm face to face with Jesus and I don't have to suffer anymore. So that's the greatest thing to be rejoicing about. Number one, I always put it on my list. Thank you, Lord, for saving me from your wrath because, boy, I deserve it. I deserve it. Everybody in this room could say the same thing. We're all sinners by nature and practice. And here's the thing. You know how it relates to your spiritual life? It, it, it's everything. Paul talks about this in his writings. As God in Christ has forgiven you, so else you should treat others, way, uh, you should love others just like God treated you when you were his enemy. Was it Ephesians 4.30 and 31? Or John, uh, Ephesians 5.1 and 2? Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. When did he forgive us? Well, we received the forgiveness of sins at the moment of our justification, our conversion. So what motivates me to love God and obey God? First of all, what motivates you to obey God and have trust in him? His love for you, what he's done for you, okay? God, what he's done for us prompts our love for him. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So I always look back how he treated me when I was, I was his enemy. He sent his son to the cross when I was his enemy. There's my motivation to love him. How do you show your love for him? Obey my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commandments. So love motivates us to live the spiritual life. Love for what he did for us in the past when we were his enemies. And listen to me. Ephesians. Ephesians. Chapter 2, that great passage at verses 1 through 9, 1 through 10, really. He raised us up and seated us with his son through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of our justification, our conversion. You're saved by grace through faith. You're seated with Christ. You know what seated with Christ means? We're rulers. Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over the works of God's hands. Satan usurped their authority. The bride of Christ, with Christ is our bridegroom. We're the bride. We're now going to restore mankind with Christ to its rightful rulership over the earth. You are in union with Christ. No matter how bad it gets, look back at that. God looks at me as he looks at his son. Crucified, died, buried, raised in sea with Christ. He loves you. He loves me. Rejoice. 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 So we're not under the wrath of God. The Edomites, they were. And they paid a price for it. They didn't repent. They didn't change their mind about the Lord and trust in him. Instead, they kept right on going, being wicked. So also, the two prophetic declarations in verse 10 of Obadiah express God's sovereignty over the nation of Edom and the nations of the earth. 
That's fantastic to know. Our God's in control. This book is telling us, God, I'm in control. God's in control. Putin, President Biden, you've heard me say this before. What are they? They'll be replaced eventually. They're nothing. All that matters really is the one who's sitting above them, ruling the nations and, over the, and holding them accountable, Jesus Christ. Also, the two prophetic declarations in Obadiah uh, verse uh, 10 express the fact that the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, is the judge of every Gentile nation on the earth. The violence that the Edomites committed against the people of the southern kingdom of Judah was during the last of the three Babylonian invasions of Judah in 586 B.C. They, look at they, they raided villages. They sent prisoners to the Babylonians. They also invaded Judah. Listen to what uh, a commentator on the book of Obadiah says. Uh, Kyle Armerding, he comments on the hatred that existed between uh, the descendants of Jacob and Esau that I noted at the beginning of the, of the lesson. He says the following, the Old Testament traces this pattern to the very origins of the two nations and the hatred of Esau for his brother Jacob. Then he goes on to say, this hatred emerged again in East Edom's hostility to Israel after the Exodus. And he, and he notes Exodus 15, 15, Numbers 20, uh, verses 14 to 21 that talk about this. And, he says, Edom is numbered among Israel's enemies who had plundered them before they were defeated by Saul. That's 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 47 and 48. Then he says, it's against this background of aggression that David's later campaigns are also to be understood. All this culminated in Edom's exultation over the destruction of Jerusalem, end of quote. So, think about this. Think about this. The bitterness and the anger and the hatred and the animosity of the Edomites to their blood relatives, look where it ended, where it, look where it ended up for them in disaster. Hatred, bitterness will destroy you. Esau, his descendants, Edomites never got over the bitterness. They kept right on you know, the Hatfields and uh, what is it? Hatfields and the, what was the other one? McCoys. Why can't I think of that? Half of that feels like McCoys. I mean, that stuff goes on all the time. People just, it's still, you see it in the Middle East. People holding grudges forever. It never ends. The cycle of violence, the bitterness. What happens? God ends up judging the both of them. They're both wicked. They're both unforgiving. They're both bitter. And listen to me, as a believer, bitterness and hatred can exist in our lives. We could have been mistreated by somebody very badly. Okay? You could have been lied about. You could have been slandered. You, somebody could have stole from you that was a believer. Don't, don't, succumb to, don't succumb to the bitterness and the anger. Okay? Forgive them. Didn't Jesus do that in the cross? The people who were gambling for the only thing he owned? He was naked on the cross and the, the Romans were gambling for his clothes. The Romans like to gamble, by the way, like Americans. That's true. And he forgave them. And those Pharisees and those scribes, they are hurling abuse at him. If you are the Savior, save yourself. He saved this. I love this, what they say. I love this in the sense, I'm astonished. They said, he saved others, and he can't save himself. He saved others. You're acknowledging that, but now you're going to talk about deceived by the devil. And yet he forgave them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Don't give in to the bitterness. Hey, as Colonel Team said famously, You've not been screwed by a Christian. You're not screwed until you've been screwed by a Christian. 
That's what he said. And that's, good, that's a great way to, you really, when you've been screwed by a Christian, it hurts bad, because you don't expect that. You expect it from the unbelievers that get you, do you, do you wrong. But no, when a Christian does, oh, that can, really, that can really flatten some people, where they leave a church, and they leave Christianity altogether. You just played right into the devil's hands. We're all sinners by nature and practice. We're all capable of committing terrible sins to each other. Forgive one another, as God in Christ has forgiven us. Don't give in to the bitterness. And that's what led to the destruction of an entire nation. Not only does it bring a discipline to a believer, this behavior and this attitude, but it brings down nations. What brings down nations, individuals, pride and arrogance and bitterness and anger, okay, and murder, brings down nations. Another commentator on Obadiah uh, verse 10, he says, Leslie Allen, he's a very good one, he says the following, the kingship, the kinship of two national groups of Edom and Israel and its corresponding obligation are stressed in Deuteronomy 23.7, which says you must not regard an Edomite with an abhorrence because he's your brother. This kinship is grounded in the patriarchal traditions of Genesis 25-29. through 29. Compare that with chapter 32, which present in prototype the history of rivalry and suspicion subsequently experienced by the two nations, Judah is expressly called Jacob in order to bring out this relationship. Then he closes the quote with this, whatever the rights and wrongs of this habitual hostility, the prophet can see no sufficient warrant for this unforgettable instance of Edom's treatment of a brother nation already overwhelmed by crisis. Kinship, he says, creates obligation which cannot be neglected with impunity. So, these prophetic declarations recorded in Obadiah 10, like all the prophecies recorded in Obadiah 2 through 16, were fulfilled in history since Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was able to capture the city of Petra, built into the rocks, and take the citizens of Edom into captivity as they did the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. Here's another thing Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar was unbelievable. What a, what a tremendous, he was brilliant. He was so brilliant because God was with him. Jeremiah 27 says, I've handed the whole world over to you. If he wanted, he could have had it. The Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world. Tyre was out in the water. He built the, they built a causeway out there to get that city. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, Petra, no problem for Nebuchadnezzar. I'll find a way. And he did. Arabian tribes, this is really really put them over. Arabian tribes moved into Edom during the 6th century BC, which forced the remnant of Edomites to migrate west. They became a province of the Persian Empire. They were no longer a national entity as a, as a result of God's judgment, and they were ultimately reduced by John Hyrcanus of the Maccabean dynasty. He was the great hero of the Maccabeans. Uh, who are the Maccabeans? First, second, third Maccabeans in the Christian, uh, the Roman Catholic Bible. They're in there. And First Maccabees, uh, a lot of the stuff that happens there is, is predicted in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, 1 through 35. Cool thing. John McCarcanus, the Seleucid Empire, with Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he attacked the Jews. He wanted to, he was committing genocide with the Jewish people. He was, they, he was uh, defiled the temple, Zerubbabel's temple, and so he was executing Jewish believers, and Daniel talks and prophesies about these believers. They were great believers, and guys like John Hyrcanus was part of the Maccabeans who revolted against the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. 
and basically delivered the people. And the Jews celebrate this to this day. And this was like in the second century BC. So ultimately, the Edomites were reduced by John Hyrcanus of the Maccabean dynasty, and they lost their national existence finally under the Romans. They vanished off the pages of history. They were for, cut off forever as a nation, though the land would again be populated. And at that place today is where Judas, uh, uh, Kingdom of Jordan, sits today. So, as we wrap up this uh, study, uh, actually, I kind of like practice uh, teaching for this long. I was just getting warmed up after about uh, 45 minutes. I was like, oh, no, Pastor Bill's going to keep talking here. So, it was fun. And so, well, we need to wrap this up in, 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 in some points here. God dealt with the nation of Edom for their betrayal of their blood relatives. So we need to make sure that we have good relationships in our family. We don't want these things to be, don't ever betray a loved one, okay? Don't ever betray a, 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 a blood relative. That's the, that's the moral of that story, too, but it's bigger. God holds nations accountable for their bad behavior to other nations. That's what that's showing. So that's a message for our nation. Where we treat other nations, God's going to hold us to account. And then also God is a God of wrath. He's a God of grace. He doesn't want anybody to face his wrath. He wants all to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, right? Yes. But people have volition, and not everybody's going to repent. In fact, most of the people, they don't. So God brings down the hammer with his, his judgment. Also, we see that God uses evil nations to destroy other evil nations. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon destroyed not only the, the, the nation of Judah, but also Edom and all these other nations in the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world that were evil as well, as manifested by their ungodly behavior. So God governs the nations, and so we need to have a healthy respect for that, we also need to be thankful of application here. Don't be bitter. That's what did Edom in. Their bitterness and anger ended up in their destruction. We don't want to be put under discipline by God for our bitterness and anger toward another believer. We're to forgive. The Edomites didn't forgive. Esau, and ironically, the progenitor of the Edomites actually did forgive Jacob. When they got back, he, they, were, they were like, Jacob was, so, Jacob was so afraid that he was going to kill him. But he, he said, what are you doing? God's blessed me. It's great to see you again, Jacob. He totally forgot about the whole thing that happened 20 years before. So this is what we need to derive from this study of Obadiah. And we're just getting warmed up because we're getting more into these um, uh, indictments against the kingdom of Judah. So we got a lot of cool things to study. Well, thank you for uh, being patient today. And uh, thank you again for uh, Freddie and doing a great job with the, um, the business meeting. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for all those who are serious students of the word of God who love your word, and we thank you for each and every one of them. We pray that the Holy Spirit would guide them in the application of these things that we've heard today. And I pray, Father, that it would be a great blessing, this message, to your people, not only here in this assembly, this church, this building, but also might be listening to these classes through our various websites and podcasts and media platforms that you've given to us. So, Father, we pray for these things in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to sing us a song. We'll get us out of here.
Now this is a song I think you all could relate because we could all say the same thing I'm saying in the song. Lord, you're good to me.